heavily, I'm a clown. What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin slip and slides. I have an interesting episode for you guys today. Some person I had never spoken with before reached out to me on Twitter. Turns out he's a practicing lawyer and is a hardcore libertarian and also has a lot of interest in economics. Him and I had a really good conversation about law in Bitcoin and then we talked for like an hour after the fact about economics. Probably going to get him back on the show at some point in time so him and I can get into the weeds about macroeconomics and all the things going on in the world right now and what roles Bitcoin will play in that. But for today, I just kind of picked his brain on various topics in Bitcoin and how they relate to his experiences and understanding in law. It's the first time I've really talked to a practicing lawyer about Bitcoin. So I had lots of questions. As you can imagine, uh, the one thing I'm pretty good at is asking really good questions. So I tried to uh, prod him for as much information as I could and just about anything that I thought that you guys would find interesting. Got a couple episodes on deck right now. So at least for the next couple weeks, there will be BECs coming out. Hopefully I can get some more guests lined up so I can keep the good stuff coming. I'll talk to you guys again at the end. Let's get to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Bitcoin lawyer, or at least that's what you told me to call you before we started. Uh, how you doing, man? Good. How are you, Colin? I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad to have you on the show today. Uh, you're an interesting perspective that we haven't had on yet before. Uh, somebody who works specifically in law. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes, I have a degree in economics, and uh, I'm also a practicing attorney, state law lawyer, a lot of the attorneys in the, in the space are federal lawyers, meaning that they focus on subjects such as security laws, uh, CFTC laws, and uh, other federal statutes like KYC, AML, that's Know Your Customer, Anti-Money Laundering Laws, whereas the state law lawyers are the ones that deal with disputes between people rather than disputes between the federal government and people. So we deal with questions like, what is the proper way to do a Bitcoin transaction? And if somebody does the transaction in a, in a negligent manner, who's responsible for that? Or if the exchange uh, takes my forked coins, then can I get them back? Real questions that have solid answers, but they, have, they don't really come up because they're not as flashy as the federal government uh, questions. Interesting. Uh, so when you say that you practice state law, does that fall under one particular state or is it just a general term used for uh, state legality? Mm -hmm. I'm licensed to, to practice in California and there are other attorneys, you know, licensed to practice throughout the country. If you, and this is a good place to put the, the obvious disclaimer that this is not legal advice. Uh, if you have any legal questions pursuant to a listener's uh, particular situation, consult with a lawyer, consult with a local lawyer. And, uh, you know, you don't have to you don't have to go all out and hire many lawyers. You can just consult with them and just get get their ideas. It's always a good idea to do that. Hmm. Yeah. Good disclaimer. I, I expect that from a lawyer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, have you had any, have you dealt with any clients uh, in, in your day-to-day -day business that have actually involved Bitcoin or cryptocurrency specifically, or is this more of a hobby for you? Well, I have, I, I wouldn't want to disclose uh, specific names, but I did work with, uh, with people in the space before, not on questions specifically related to Bitcoin, on tangentially related questions to their business. But uh, Bitcoin law policy is something that's very interesting to me. I do want to start 
a Bitcoin-only coin center at some point. And the idea is that I want to help develop the laws in a manner that is very positive and pro-Bitcoin, very uh, pro-maximalist and, and other ideas that, that we're both privy to. Mm. Uh, I think that the states that are already doing a good job are Wyoming and some other states such as, you know, uh, well, some other states will, will soon be considering legislation. My position is that states don't really need to pass le- legislation. I know that some institutional inventors, uh, investors want to see what's called enabling legislation, which means the state blesses the new technology and blesses Bitcoin before the institutional investor gets involved in it. But I'm an, I am of the opinion that we don't need statutes, which are the, the laws passed by the legislatures. All we need are really the judges because the judges employ the common law. And they're, if somebody comes to it before a judge and they have a problem with their, with their Bitcoin transaction, for instance, the judge will learn the law and the judge will learn about the, the technology and will state the common sense law that applies and applying uh, state law, which is relatively settled when it comes to property rights, contract rights, and also uh, other rights that we have against other people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you, you, so uh, is it that we're really looking for the judiciary branch to set, uh, to set the legal precedent rather than uh, have it be made by legislators? As a general rule, the judge-made law will be better for Bitcoin than the legislative uh, enactments. And the reason why is that the legislative enactments are mostly going to be detrimental, focusing on regulating the industry and focusing on uh, imposing further requirements on people. We don't need, for instance, we don't need the, the California legislature to say, oh, yes, Bitcoin is legal, right? Because Bitcoin is legal by default. Hmm. The default in the United States is that something is legal unless it's specifically prohibited, mm-hmm. right? So the judges, when you come before a judge, it's usually... Uh, dispute with another business or another person. And the judges are going to uh, adjudicate those rights. And, you know, these theoretical arguments, for instance, some people say that you have no property right in a Bitcoin, right, which is ridiculous. It's a myth. If you go before a judge and you say, hey, this this guy stole my Bitcoin, right, the judge isn't going to say, oh, well, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a property right in a blockchain or the judge isn't going to say, oh, the legislature hasn't told me that a Bitcoin is property yet. No, the, ju- the judge is going to say, yeah, you have a property right in your Bitcoin and that guy took it from you. We're going we're gonna, to uh, you know, either hold him guilty of a crime or, or in, the civil, in the civil area, we're going to say, yeah, he, he owes it back to you. Now, uh, since we're on the topic, I'll jump to the, an interesting point there. Are you entitled to the return of the Bitcoin or are you entitled to a judgment for money at the time that the Bitcoin was stolen, how much was the Bitcoin worth, right? Hmm. And I think that a, a, sensible, uh, a sensible solution to that would be that you're entitled to either. It's, it's an election of the person who had their Bitcoin stolen. If they can track the Bitcoin on the blockchain and actually uh, sue to get that Bitcoin returned to them, of course, the judge isn't going to be able to uh, fabricate an invalid transaction and, and, and get it approved by the miners, right? Instead, what's going to happen is that the judge would have jurisdiction over the person who sold the Bitcoin and they would order them to return the Bitcoin if that's, if that's possible. Alternatively, you have a money judgment and a money judgment has to be enforced just like any other, any other judgment. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, and what about, is there any uh, historical precedent for the demanding, like, let's say that the two people get into a dispute. Let's say you take my one Bitcoin and then 10 years later, I sue you and say, hey, he stole my Bitcoin. I want it back. Uh, and then the judge orders you to return that one Bitcoin to me. But over the course of time, the price of that one Bitcoin has gone up from uh, $10,000 to $10 million. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we agree, I, I say, well, I want my one Bitcoin back, uh, but you have no hopes of ever repaying that Bitcoin to me because as soon as you stole it from me, you took it and sold it or whatever. Uh, is there any historical precedent for assets that appreciate in value like that? Absolutely. There is precedent for that. 
general, the general rule is that if somebody steals your property, uh, you can elect, uh, you could sue them on a theory called conversion, meaning that if they've, if they've completely dispossessed you, you're forcing a sale of the property at the time it was stolen and you're entitled to a money judgment for its market value at that time. That's, that's the rule for conversion. If you want the return of the, of the uh, property, then generally the defendant, whoever you're suing, has to still be in possession of the property for you to get it back. Now, with the 10-year the example, and by the way, $10 million is a good price prediction. I, I uh, endorse that. <laughs> with regard to the 10-year example, the statute of limitations would have run by that time. So the statute of limitations means that you have to bring your lawsuit within two, three, four years. Some, sometimes you can bring a lawsuit after that, but those are the exceptions rather than the rule. So you want to make sure that you uh, get moving on your legal rights quick to preserve your legal rights. With regard to following the Bitcoin, the way that the, the scenario that this would likely come up in is that somebody hacks, uh, let's say hacker steals uh, somebody's Bitcoin, right? That person uh, had their Bitcoin stolen. They're tracking it on the blockchain. They're trying to wait until the Bitcoin enters a regulated intermediary, and then they can go to that intermediary and say, pause, I, those are my Bitcoin, and I'm suing, I'm suing you, and I'm suing, you know, I don't know who the hacker is, but I'll, uh, if I find out who they are, I'll join them into the lawsuit, and I'm suing you for the return of that Bitcoin. So that's, that's a, a strategy that I would advise if anybody had their Bitcoin stolen to try to try to follow that strategy. Maybe you'll be able to recover the Bitcoin, maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the concept, that concept could also be, uh, be implemented by suing instead of another person, which is in person am jurisdiction, jurisdiction, that's what they call it, right? Uh, there's in rem jurisdiction where you're suing property. So you could sue, let's say that the Bitcoins enter Coinbase, you could sue those Bitcoin and you could say, I'm suing the Bitcoin that you have in your possession, Coinbase, and I want them returned to me. And that way you can get jurisdiction over the stolen property without necessarily knowing who the hacker is. Now, this is, this is theoretical and I haven't seen an example of this happening in the real world. But if there is an example, definitely send it to us on Twitter. Uh, you're at heavily, uh, heavily armed C, is that correct? And I'm at Bitcoin underscore lobby. Yeah, that's correct for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I hate to bring this up, but I feel like I have to because it's, uh, and, and you and I sort of talked about this a little bit, but, uh, Craig Wright and I, I never want to say his name on my podcast again. Uh, so we'll just, we'll just call him C. Uh, C you know, recently was ordered by a judge to pay a large sum of money in Bitcoin uh, to somebody who supposedly proved in court that, that they're uh, rightfully obligated to a certain amount of Bitcoin that he supposedly holds in a trust. And something that I had mentioned to you in our Twitter messages is that um, doesn't this create issue because of the plausible deniability of Bitcoin, you know, being that it can't be audited? Like, for example, you could audit my bank account, find out exactly how much money I have, uh, but you can't audit my Bitcoin private keys, at least not in a way that's 100% uh, has, has any real finality to it. Uh, is there any, can, can you expand on that a little bit? That's true. It's It's very difficult to prove the negative, to prove that Oh, this person, you know, doesn't doesn't have certain access to certain Bitcoin because uh, they could always have a wallet that they've kept incredibly hidden from everybody else. But in the real world, the way that something like this would play out is that the lawyers in that case have a tremendous financial incentive to track down these Bitcoin. So the way that this would happen in the real world is that people would try to find out what wall, uh, what addresses were controlled by you in the past. They'll look at transactions that you sent to other people. They'll try to uh, maybe blockchain analysis firm to try to track down uh, the, the addresses that are under control by the person. And they'll bring the person in the court and they'll put the, put the person under oath at a, what's called a debtor's ex examination. And they'll say, they'll, they'll put them under, uh, they'll ask them, you know, when did you buy? Where did you buy? How did you buy? When did you send? You know, where did you get the money, right? They may try to subpoena a third party and say, hey, you inter uh, regulated intermediary, 
I know where you are. Uh, tell me what transactions has this person done on your platform, right? Hmm. And uh, they, there may be certain privacy limitations that, that exist, constitutional privacy limitations on that maneuver. But the idea is that these lawyers are going to try to catch try to catch the person slipping. Like when Charlie Shrem was sued by the Winklevoss twins because he was spending a lot of money after he got out of jail and the Winklevoss twins said, hey, he, he owes us money because he, he uh, X, Y, Z, this is our legal theory. And look, he's spending this money. That means he must be in control of Bitcoin. So you could also use circumstantial evidence. You could take Charlie Shrem in on a debtor's examination, assuming that there's a judgment and say, Where'd you get the money to buy this boat? Where'd you get the money to buy this house? And try to track down the Bitcoin that way. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that there could be any problems for the individual uh, in the event? Because theoretically, I can prove that I have Bitcoin by signing a transaction, but I can never prove, as you said, uh, never prove the negative that I don't have Bitcoin. Do you think that that ever presents a problem for, for people and their, their liberties in the future? Hmm, very interesting. The reason why I like the Bitcoin model, or more specifically the public key, private key cryptography, is that a person can select what they want to reveal and when they want to reveal it. For instance, you can sign a message with the addresses that you want the person to know that uh, to know exist and to show that you are in control of funds but you don't necessarily need to, right? You could be very selective as to what, what private keys you use to sign certain messages. So I think it's actually empowering for uh, personal liberties because it's an opt-in system mm-hmm. rather than a system where all information is known at all times and, and good luck segregating your accounts in real life. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and, and you had mentioned one of the interesting things about this um, this plausible plausible deniability problem uh, also arises in one of the most common memes in Bitcoin, which is the boating accident. And some of the uh, could you expand on some of the things you've mentioned about that? Yes. Uh, so the boating accident is is kind of a funny meme. I, I like the meme. The my addition to the meme is that oh, I lost the Bitcoin in a Bitmax accident. So that's that's uh, probably more realistic. I think that if somebody has a cover story, it needs to be realistic. You know, uh, if somebody's been raving about Bitcoin for years and then they claim that they don't have any, I think that that's less realistic than, or less believable than if they say, oh, yeah, I do have a little bit of Bitcoin and it's right here. And it's a smaller amount. And it's, of course, it's it never touched any of their other UTXOs. But they could say, oh, yeah, you know, I have. I have this amount, and yeah, that's a lot of money. What do you mean? You expect me to? You expect me to make a reckless uh, decision? Who, who in the Bitcoin space is reckless, right? So it's better to have a little bit of plausible deniability, and to have, uh, and to have like a, a realistic story than to say, no, I don't have any, and and uh, I, I I was just talking about Bitcoin, but I was just an observer. I never participated in it financially. That being said. You probably do want to tell people, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just an observer. I, you don't necessarily want to post transaction IDs on your, on your uh, Twitter and say, I just bought some more today, like buying the dip, right? Then, then people can come back and say, well, look, we have all of this evidence that you, of your own words, that, that you were buying Bitcoin. You must have some, right? Uh, show it to us. And the, the court, the court is not going to you know, punish somebody for uh, being in contempt of court unless they really think that, yes, this person is lying to the court, right? So you always want to have some plausible deniability and uh, and always teach new Bitcoiners about the importance of keeping their total amount of Bitcoin secret, right? That's that's so extremely important that it's it cannot be stressed enough, right? Whenever somebody asks you how much Bitcoin do you have, Never give them a never give them an accurate answer. Hmm. Yeah, I've been asked that question from time to time, and I usually answer it with another question, like, "How much money is in your bank account?" <laughs> <laughs> Do um, they ever tell you how much money is in their bank account? Yeah, I have had people say, "Well, that's not a big deal here," and then they tell me, and now they want to know how much Bitcoin I have, and I say, um, <laughs> <laughs> "This did not go how I planned." But you had also mentioned in our in our tweets. Uh, 
the boating accident meme requiring you know both credible testimony and circumstantial evidence uh it's it's not just something that you can claim happened and, and then just be like yeah well that's what happened there has to be some sort of uh circumstantial evidence right yes that's right whenever whenever a person is trying to prove something and and remember the the way that the legal system works is the legal system doesn't ask what is the truth what what is the absolute truth what really happened the, what instead the legal system asks is okay what's more likely than not that's mm-hmm. the legal standard called the preponderance of the evidence and that's a, that applies in civil actions and you probably know a lot of this column but i'm going to just tell the listeners so they know the the civil actions are the ones that uh, are usually between people it could also be between a person and a government but it's essentially uh, it has a lower standard of proof the court just wants to make it wants to make findings of fact. It wants to know what's more likely than not, right? And if you're in a criminal action, then the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. When I think that the best way to explain that legal standard is literally the way that it's phrased. If you have a reasonable doubt, then then we're going to not have that finding. And that's involved in uh, in a lot of uh, in in criminal actions, right? So to be in to be uh, subject to a criminal uh, conviction, you have to the prosecutor has to prove all of the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's one last standard, which I'm just going to mention so people are aware of it. It's called clear and convincing evidence. Clear and convincing evidence is, uh, is in between preponderance and beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's sometimes employed in civil cases where the courts want a little bit more assurance than normal. Uh, and you, you know what? I'll throw out one more for the list, for the curious listener. Uh, probable cause, right? Probable cause is very relevant when it comes to your criminal procedure rights and your your constitutional rights and your statutory rights. So if if you are ever in a situation where you may be in trouble with the law, you definitely want to consult with a lawyer, especially before you start divulging information to law enforcement, right? You always want to know your rights, and the person that's going to know your rights the best is somebody who practices in that field. Hmm. That's good advice. <laughs> I would expect again. I, I, advice I would expect to get from uh, from a lawyer. But uh, so you had mentioned <laughs> earlier there about chain analysis. Uh, are you aware of any legal precedents that have been set using chain analysis, and whether or not it's considered a definitive source of authority? Um, how trusted it is in a court setting, and if there's been any successful. Uh, obfuscations of that technology's authority through something like a like a coin mixer. Hmm. My understanding, and and I'm not aware of any precedent. There, there's probably precedent out there, uh, but my understanding of chain analysis is that it's probabilistic, right? Mm-hmm. And these these determinations would be in a court of law. These determinations would be made by either the judge or a jury. Right. So the judge and the jury, you're going to they're going to be presented evidence and the chain analysis expert is going to come in and he's going to say, I did I did my study and these are my this is my methodology. And it's scientific enough to for me to come to the conclusion that these coins were controlled by this person at this time or these these coins are linked to these other coins with a confidence interval or whatever. You know, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, we were uh, we're like 95 percent confident that these coins were. And, and they'll use their statistical uh, methods to try to to try to draw those determinations. Now, when you're looking at another person's uh, transaction history, right, you don't know whether uh, if they if you know for sure they control one address, you don't know if they control the address before it and you don't know if they control the address after it, uh, assuming those UTXOs are are transferred along. Right. But we can use some heuristics uh, personally to to discern, OK, this looks like a change transaction. And because uh, it looks like a change transaction, this person probably was in control of the larger UTXO, right? So because of that, it's very important to keep good, good, uh, good OPSEC, good uh, security hygiene. And what I find in practice is the best way to do that, besides using Wasabi and other, other uh, technical, uh, uh, technically advanced uh, tools, I think the best way to do it is to literally just have different passphrases, different accounts, and segregate your coins on on the UI itself. And that will ensure that your UTXOs are never commingled. 
Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think, you know, people highlight the importance of using Wasabi just for, uh, yeah, like uh, I think Gigi was one of the people who made that term really popular, the uh, your Bitcoin hygiene. I think that that's a really cool term. Um, I have thought about the importance of Wasabi, not just, you know, in, in your storage and in trying to obfuscate like your, your total value and those types of things. But anytime that you're sending Bitcoin, uh, it's really important that those should be mixed coins. And the reason for that is because if I were to say send you, you know, one Bitcoin for, for something, a purchase of a service or a good, and you decided at some point in time that you didn't like me and, and those UTXOs were linked to my identity, you could take those Bitcoins and then do something um, illegal or heinous with them. And then that could be linked back to me. And, and there's really no link with your identity on that UTXO set. It's linked to my identity if I at any point in time linked those UTXOs to myself. That is a very good point. Uh, one thing that I'm concerned about is uh, if if there is uh, adverse governmental actions, and I'm one, you know, sorry for the foot. If the government starts saying mixing is not appropriate, then those coins might lose market value. But of course, after after eight hops or so, it becomes almost uh, it becomes comp- computationally very difficult to know whether the coins work uh, coin joined at any point. So I think that the benefits certainly outweigh the costs. And I think that you're right to consider not only what the people in the future are going to know about you, but also the people in the past that have, uh, that have been involved in that, in that, uh, in the chain of transactions, you don't want them to know about your prospective financial history, or, you know, your prospective financial moves, and you don't want the people that are going to come o- come across your UTXOs in the future to know about your financial history. Hmm. Um, so let's change gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned um, the, how cryptography changes law. Uh, Cause I had talked to, wanted to talk about some of the ways that cryptography has changed the law in, uh, in the United States alone. Just, just in the time that I've been alive, in the three decades I've been alive. Um, and you, you also mentioned the finality of settlement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. The, the beautiful thing about cryptography is that the law is, the law, I mean, the, the legislatures pass laws that are sometimes, you know, unadministerable or really unrealistic, right? But the, the common law is, it actually evolves in a decentralized manner which is kind of nice, whereas the legislatures are a centralized source of law. So the, the common law judges, there there's levels of reviews and there's checks and balances and the law kind of develops uh, over time. The beautiful thing about cryptography is that it kind of forces change onto the law. So for instance, if cryptography has enabled Bitcoin and Bitcoin has enabled irreversible transactions, right? The, the judge is not going to order something that's impossible. They're not going to order the reversal of an irreversible transaction. So instead of trying to argue uh, the, the legally impossible, right, to try to argue that transactions should be irreversible, instead cryptography has imposed irreversible transactions, and now the law has to deal with it, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I know that there's a lot, and this, this goes back to my overarching thesis, which is that a lot of these questions are already settled, right? A lot of these questions came up when the internet was invented and when the internet was developing. And the question was, well, we can't really, you know, order certain things on the internet because how can we stop the flow of packets? The packets are going to flow the way that they flow. All that we can do is impose our will upon the intermediaries that are within our jurisdiction, mm-hmm. right? So there's this one case in France that's very famous where, there was a the Yahoo equivalent of eBay back in the day where Yahoo had a marketplace and somebody was selling Nazi paraphernalia on the marketplace. So a judge in, in uh, Paris ordered, I think it was in Paris, ordered that Yahoo Finance take down those listings, right? And Yahoo said, hey, we're not, we're not governing the marketplace. The marketplace is uh, people are free to use our our service however they want to, and we're not responsible for the way that they're using our service. But, you know, what happened was that the Yahoo ended up complying because the judge in, in France said, 
for every day that you don't take down these listings, I'm gonna in, I'm gonna implement a very heavy fine on on Yahoo, right? And and they're business people. You know, business people are going to react to incentives like any other economic actor, and we can't blame them for responding to the incentive structure that they've been given. Right now, let's let's also go back to the Internet, uh, the early days of the Internet as well, because there were actually uh, there was actually a very important legislative statute that was passed that protected the early development of the Internet. And I know that Peter Van Valkenburg uh, from Coin Center has been uh, arguing that this this was very uh, helpful to the development of the Internet. And we should have something similar in in Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin space, basically. And the idea is that. the the website, let's say Yahoo, they shouldn't be responsible legally for what other people post on their website. Mm-hmm. And they're not responsible for what other people post on their website unless they somehow encouraged it or they're actively moderating, uh, actively moderating their website and they, and they intentionally didn't, didn't moderate uh, certain posts, right? They can't be, they can't be liable for what's posted. And if you think about it, we needed a law like that because YouTube, look how many minutes of YouTube are uploaded every second, mm-hmm. right? Of YouTube videos. How would YouTube ever be able to take down enough videos to protect itself from liability? So instead, the internet was kind of uh, protected in the United States, whereas you saw in other countries, even though Yahoo can say, yeah, we're not a French corporation, but the French judge says, well, good luck if you ever want to do business in France because you're going to have an outstanding uh, uh fine levied against your firm hmm. that, that uh, i like that that's a common sense uh, ruling that i'm glad i'm glad we have because i think about you know anybody who's ever been like a moderator on a forum or something like that knows that there's an awful lot of nonsense that gets posted on the internet i mean probably anybody who uses the internet knows that but uh, if you're a moderator you know you don't want to just blanket delete all of it because people like to have their little space to do weird things but uh, you, you would never want to be held liable for the actions of someone else online. That would be a really dangerous uh, precedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The other legal case that comes to mind for me um, is the State, Detar- State Department's case against Phil Zimmerman following his creation of PGP uh, because prior to uh, his distribution of PGP, exportation of cryptography above a certain grade was illegal in the United States. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that at all? You know, I, I haven't read the case, but I'm familiar with the story, right? Doesn't he print it on a T-shirt or somebody printed the the code on a T-shirt and, and tried to uh, leave the country and, and that was that was deemed as protected? Or is, that, is that your understanding as well? No, I had never heard that actually. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a famous story about that. You know, I in preparation for this interview, I wanted to look more into the proposition that code is speech or code should be treated as free speech. And I had looked into it previously and I couldn't find any any really good binding case law on the subject. And when I say binding, I mean the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court never ruled on it, right? And I didn't see any other uh, blockbuster cases. There was one case from the Ninth Circuit that said, yes, code code should be protected as speech, but that case was, I think, vacated uh, for a, a rehearing. There were three judges that heard that case. It was a three-judge appellate pa- uh, panel, and the uh, entire Ninth Circuit, which is like an 11 or 13-judge court, said, we'll rehear the case, but they never ended up rehearing the case because the case was not pursued by the government. And I, I think that, uh, so I, what I did in preparation for the interview was I I paged some of the other legal minds in the space, and they confirmed my my understanding. It, it was a, a Twitter thread a few days ago, and I thank them for their for their contributions to that thread. Uh, Polly was very uh, instrumental, and uh, so uh, as well as um, uh, I, I'm forgetting his name, but somebody else contributed as well. And they they also said, yeah, code isn't isn't necessarily hasn't been ruled as speech, but I don't think that that rules out the argument. I would like to see that argument be brought, especially because the United States Supreme Court is very protective of speech. And that is a, a, a liberty that we treasure. And I think that it could be interpreted as, uh, as being protected by the First Amendment. Now, of course, it depends on the, on the posture of the case, right? If, 
if a little old lady was contributing to the Bitcoin core repository and she was prosecuted by the government, the, the, the courts would probably hold in her favor. And if somebody, if somebody was, uh, and this is legal realism, right? And, and then look at Ross, uh, Ross Ulbricht. Mm-hmm. He was shown no mercy because he didn't have the, the persuasiveness of the facts on his side, mm-hmm. right? So I think that uh, I would like that argument to be seen, especially because economic liberties have ever since, you know, the 1930s, economic liberties have really suffered. They are making a comeback in recent times, but generally the the government can do whatever, uh, whatever regulation it wants on an economic transaction. The, the, The protections are very limited, whereas when it comes to speech, the protections are very heightened. So we would want to argue that this is expressive content. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and, and I guess, I guess there isn't really any overlap there um, with, with what we were just talking about before that, about not being held uh, liable for what someone does with your platform, which technically a platform is um, code, right? And code is technically, I guess, you know, you could consider it speech, uh, but it is a mantra that we hear a lot in, in the Bitcoin space that that code is free speech. And I certainly hope that that would be the case moving forward uh, from a, from a legal standpoint, but I guess that's yet to be seen, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it also depends on, on uh, the posture, a few other hypotheticals. And we'll just, uh, if I could offer them, one would be that the government, you know, uh, imposes, um, you know, KYC regulations on an intermediary, on an exchange, right? The exchange would likely lose that case. Uh, If the, let's say that the government wanted to tell all Americans, you have to transfer your Bitcoins to the treasury of the United States, right? And we're not going to pay you for it. The government would probably lose that case because the government cannot take property without just compensation. And there was a, a case, I think from 2005, where the government, uh, one of the departments of the, of the national, uh, federal government told the farmers, oh yeah, you raisin farmers, you have to give us a portion of your raisin crop every, every harvest. And the Supreme Court held, hey, you have to pay those raisin farmers for the, for the market value of those raisins. You can't just physically take their raisins from them and get away with it, right? So these are, these are all things to consider. Now, uh, once again, sorry for the FUD, Assume that we are going to one of those inflationary depressions and Bitcoin is uh, mooning every day and the dollar is plummeting, right? Then in that case, the, the Supreme Court is going to bend over backwards for the, for the uh, Congress and the, and the president because uh, just like this, this actually happened. Uh, if you think about the gold being taken away with an executive order, which was ridiculously unconstitutional, right? That in, in times of war and in times of economic disaster, the government really steals a lot of uh, individual liberties, right? Hmm. My contention is that we want to have the decentralization of the lawmaking process. So we don't want the less the federal government, the less laws that the federal government passes about Bitcoin, the better off we are, right? The less laws that the states pass about Bitcoin, we're probably better off as well. We could allow the judges to apply well-settled case law to Bitcoin, and it will work out pretty well. That's interesting that you mentioned uh, Executive Order 6102, because uh, some of the other, and I've done some research on this, some of the other legislation that that was passed alongside, like the 1933 Banking Act, uh, and uh, later on, you know, Glass-Steagall, which was a part of that. And uh, when, when those laws were passed, they were passed with such haste in because of the uh, bank runs that were happening at the time and because of the fact that the banks had already declared like a week-long holiday and then the president had to declare banking holidays as well on top of that to, to help stem the bank runs. Uh, these emergency banking acts, quote-unquote, were passed with such haste that even on the floor when they were being discussed, there weren't enough paper copies for every uh, representative to have their own to look over. They had to actually pass one or two copies around and, and read it out loud from the center of the room in order for everyone to hear uh, the, the framework that was being presented. That is so ridiculous. You know, the fact that they would pass a law like that, that's so consequential to our rights. It sure is interesting, though. I mean, I, granted, it was a different time. You know, we didn't have uh, inkjet printers back then, but 
Uh, it's it's definitely pause for concern that such a tremendous act of legislation that still impacts us today would have been pushed forward so hastily. Mm -hmm. Since we're on the subject, I, I want to also point out that a lot of the federal laws that govern people are the federal regulations, which are promulgated by the federal agencies rather than the Congress. And uh, generally under the Constitution, all laws have to be voted uh, voted on uh, by a majority of the House and the Senate, and it has to be signed into law by the president. But nowadays, a lot of these laws are actually made by the administrative agencies. They don't go through congressional review. They're made in private. The agencies have very, very broad discretion to not only interpret the statutes the way that they want to, but also to expand, even expand the statutes and their regulations have the force of a congressional statute, that's unconstitutional, right? And then on the flip side, you have the judicial powers, which are vested in the United States Supreme Court, uh, the, the federal judicial powers, right? Which are vested in the federal courts, but you also have agencies that are, that are giving administrative uh, adjudications. Once again, that's unconstitutional as well, but the system has has acquiesced to it. It was a major political battle back in the in the FDR era, right? There was a, a turning over of the of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, basically broadened the discretion of these agencies for for decades. And it's led to a crushing amount of regulations and a crushing amount of of laws, which would simply would not really have been possible if they all had to go through Congress. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are seeing a pushback at this point from the Supreme Court. But the problem is that we've we've gone so far astray that we're living in the midst of a very unconstitutional uh, regime at this point. Mm. That's something that I uh, worry about every day, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all do. We're Bitcoiners. Mm. Um, I do want to circle back to something else you'd mentioned earlier uh, when you said that uh, we were talking about the finality of settlement. Um, and I know you, you did say, you know, you're not, you don't work in securities. Uh, you're, you're not, uh, you don't really specialize in necessarily like financial law or, or those types of things. But uh, are, is there anything that you're aware of where transactions, whether it be uh, of assets or of equities or of uh, obviously in money, um, there, there needs to be a degree of reversibility uh, in order for those, like my bank account has to have a degree of reversibility on transactions that I make, uh, credit cards, for example, or debit cards. Uh, and then, you know, you think about buying stocks and those assets have a degree of reversibility, right? My equities can be frozen uh, and seized. Is there anything that you're aware of that a requirement legally uh, for reversibility of transactions for certain assets? That's a wonderful question. And there are di different variations of reversibility. Some are voluntary, uh, imposed by the, for instance, the credit card companies and their, and their, uh, terms of service. Others are, uh, imposed by statutes such as the Truth in Lending Act, which requires, uh, which, which imposes certain defenses onto the card, the co uh, credit card company in favor of the consumer. And of course, you know, it's consumer friendly to have some reversibility. It's also uh, by the, by the same coin, it's also anti-merchant and it's also imposes higher transaction fees on all of these transactions. Now, if there is a law that imposes reversible, you know, reversibility requirements of which I'm not aware, uh, it doesn't matter. And that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that instead of waiting for the law to evolve, we just said, this is the this is the fact of the matter, and now we have to deal with it, right? Hmm. So between between people, if they're doing Bitcoin transactions, if we're doing Bitcoin transactions between each other, sure the transactions aren't reversible, but that doesn't mean that you're that you're uh, out of luck if if your counterparty commits fraud on you, right? You just have to do what everyone else does and go to court and sue the person and try to prove that they committed fraud on you. But of course. What Bitcoin also encourages us to do is to be more vigilant from the very beginning, right? And as a lawyer, as a transactional lawyer, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to do a transaction where I sell, you know, XYZ for Bitcoin, 
right? Then I'm going to have to do what I'm going to have to advise them that they have to act as a reasonable person would. And what would a reasonable person do? They would spin up a Bitcoin core full node and they would wait for multiple confirmations, right? Mm -hmm. They would confirm the address over the phone or through another independent channel and they would uh, make sure that their counterparty is trustworthy or structure the transaction in a manner where they would have where it would minimize the trust so uh, regarding reversibility of course the federal government can go to coinbase for instance and say under uh, under this law or this authority we are requiring you to freeze your uh, this bitcoin that's attributed to this to this criminal right and and they could certainly do that and that is a, a form of de facto uh, reversibility. But once again, they're not using Bitcoin. If they're transacting uh, within Coinbase, they're not using Bitcoin, they're using Coinbase coin. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, what I do wonder about, you know, you hear people talking about uh, issuing credit on, on a blockchain or more particularly in my case, issuing, issuing things um, that are tokenized on Bitcoin specifically or smart contract um, settlement, Um, maybe like issuing credit, issuing equity um, through like tokenizing it on the Bitcoin blockchain, issuing assets, even like smart contracts to settle the deed of a house. Um, What about reversibility in those circumstances? Or or again, is it kind of one of those, well, you know, the the Pandora's out of the box on Bitcoin. So uh, ask for forgiveness, not for permission for reversibility and safeguards in those transactions, they will have to be coded in. Now, of course, we know that Bitcoin will have many, many layers, right? It will have, uh, you know, so many layers, so many, uh, so much uh, potential within those layers that there will be certain Bitcoin transactions that settle on the blockchain that do have a degree of reversibility, right? I think that there are some technical proposals that are being discussed by the developers now that would allow that, which Mm -hmm. is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also other methods that could be used. Of course, multi-sig, you could have a multi-sig escrow. Uh, Those, that would be the way to impose the, um, I would say like modularity on, on the different types of Bitcoin transactions. Now for the smart contract, for instance, let's get into that because you can code into a smart contract the degree of reversibility that the parties uh, feel comfortable with and that the parties agree upon, right? That needs to be specifically coded in. Uh, Now, let's assume that we didn't code it in, right? Let's assume that we're engaged in a smart contract and all of a sudden the smart contract has a bug and, oh my goodness, all my money got sent to the wrong person, right? What do I do? And I, I know that a lot of people call for immutability. And on a technological level, sure, the Bitcoin transaction is immutable, right? But that doesn't mean that the court is going to say, oh, you know what? Well, you know, it's, a, it's immutable. Sorry, we can't help you, right? No, the court is going to say, what was the intent of the parties? What was the scope of the contract? If these people uh, agreed to code that they misinterpreted, well, there's doctrines for that. There's mutual mistake, unilateral mistake. Uh, sometimes you have frustration of purpose, where the purpose of the contract no longer makes uh, it makes the con you know the purpose went away, so now the contract doesn't make sense anymore. And then sometimes there's impossibility, where the actual uh, idea behind the contract has become impossible, and now we now we can't even do what the contract called for, right? Then the court would would apply its contractual analysis, which is very well settled, very straightforward. And it's very fair. I think that these these common law uh, schemes are actually extremely well well designed, and it's because they weren't designed by a central party. It was designed in a decentralized manner. Hmm. Um, well, the one other major topic I wanted to get into, and, and even in our messages, we kind of had uh, come to a dead end on this, but I do want to talk about it. Uh, and this is something I think about a lot is border crossings uh, in regards to um, in p- possession of, of Bitcoin. Now, obviously, you shared with me uh, that the possession of undisclosed assets in excess of $10,000 when crossing the border is illegal, uh, and any intent to uh, obscure that information or, or non-disclosure is uh, punishable, obviously. Um, but but Bitcoin poses some problems there. Uh, can you talk about your initial thoughts on that? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. So the way that the law stands, if a person is crossing the border with more than $10,000 of money or monetary equivalents, such as a cashier's check or, or gold, whatnot, uh, then they have to disclose it. Now, crossing the border with $11,000 is not a crime, right? What's a crime is if you didn't disclose it and you, in, and you knew you had to disclose it and you, and you, uh, intended to not disclose it, right? So, uh, it, I don't think anybody's going to win the argument if they, if they're on an airplane and they're told you have to disclose anything over $10,000. I don't think they're going to win on the argument that, oh, I didn't know I had to disclose it, right? I guess with Bitcoin, it does introduce some uncertainties, uh, which, which should be argued. It should be argued by, by the lawyer, uh, by some lawyers in the future if they ever have to confront this issue. Um, now, what are the consequences, right? If a person does not disclose the money and they get caught, the biggest problem is that the, the government can uh, move for civil forfeiture, Right. And the problem with civil forfeiture is that you lose, you lose the whatever amount of money that you were bringing over the border. And the worst part about the civil forfeiture is that since it's a civil case, you have the lower standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence. Right. And you also don't have the same constitutional protections that you would in a criminal action. Now, in a criminal action, uh, if you have criminal forfeiture, right, which is with the criminal forfeiture action is brought against the person rather than against the property in a civil forfeiture action, which is uh, going back to the distinction between in rem and in person am jurisdiction, right? There was a case where that went to the United States Supreme Court where the guy was on an airplane with a court with a third of a million dollars and he didn't disclose it because in his where he comes from, if you disclose it, they take it from you, right? right. You know, you're not gonna be leaving the airport with that third of a million if you tell the authorities and that you have it, right? Mm-hmm. So the the uh, he didn't disclose it for that reason, and they tried to and they tried to get that money from him in a civil forfeiture, and he lost it in the lower courts, and he had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court barely ruled in his favor, five four. They held that the Eighth Amendment ex- excessive fines. Uh, constitutional protection uh, pr- uh, prote- prevented the forfeiture of that large sum of money, right? Go back to the civil era. The civil forfeiture, that, that's not protected by the Eighth Amendment. So you have to be very careful. Now, I know we, we talked about what happens if you're crossing a border, and, and this is a very delicate question, right? Because let's say that a person has their treasure with them, right? Do they, does that mean that they have to declare to the federal government, every single UTXO that their treasurer has access to. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of ridiculous. But if you just apply the law on its face, then that's that sounds like what it would require, right? Now, I think a more common sense way of interpreting the law, and of course, I'm I'm the Bitcoin advocate, so I'm going to come up with a with a better way of interpreting the law is that the person has to be intending to smuggle that that Bitcoin across the border, right? And in that case, why don't they just send it from, uh, while they're in, in the United States, send it to an address that's controlled by keys outside of the United States, and then they won't be committing a crime by crossing the border with, uh, without, those, uh, without the private keys with them, right? So I guess that if a person has, let's go on one end of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, the person uh, has a uh, private key or a private seed memorized in their head, right? And they cross the border and they don't declare the Bitcoin associated with that key. I think that they're fine because they have a very strong argument that, hey, they don't have the ability to sign with those, with that private seed. They don't have the, the mechanics to sign a transaction. Therefore, they don't have access to the Bitcoin. They're just memorizing a backup, uh, a backup which they can potentially use when they get to the other side, right? On the other hand, uh, you're bringing a treasure beyond the border, right? And of course, you got to use multiple passphrases. And if you if you are if you are going to use a treasure, right, you could you could show that the default passphrase has less than ten thousand dollars associated with it, right? That's kind of the fluffy pony approach. Uh, he says that whenever he crosses the border, he doesn't want to be in a position where he tells the the agents, "Sorry, I'm not going to show you what's on my computer." He just brings a a, a burner, which he says, "Go ahead." you can look through the entire thing and, and you're not going to find anything. Right. So mm-hmm. you always have to, you have to be careful. And now, of course I'm not, I would never t- uh, counsel anybody to break the law. Right. What I, 
what I propose is that, look, we, we find out what the law is and comply with it. And you be smart. You know, you don't have to you don't have to fight the law. You could use it and, and work with it. So I think that a good example of that would be um, instead of trying to trying to bring that much Bitcoin across the border, you could just uh, maybe find um, an, uh, somebody who would be willing to to uh, provide an address that you can whatever use Shamir secret sharing, and when you get across the border, you can go ahead and try to redeem that coin. Hmm. Or or set up like a multi-sig solution uh, with multiple keys in the hands of multiple people or something like that. And that's a good idea, yeah. Hmm. One but, more uh, thought on the multi-sig, because the the way to avoid federal regulations, right, is is to be non-custodial. Really, that's the the upshot of the matter is that if you're if a person's custodial and they and they ever care about doing business in the United States or setting foot in the United States, they're going to be either regulated uh, a priori or regulated uh, post, post uh, hoc, right? So the, the idea here is that you want to create, and people in the industry should be focusing on creating decentralized solutions, peer-to-peer solutions like Satoshi did, right? Satoshi it didn't give himself any significant duties in the Bitcoin network. He just created the code, set the ship out to sea, and that's it. And it and it runs itself. It's kind of like a wasabi type business model where you create the code, you set it out to sea, and then you don't have any control over it. And if somebody comes to you and and says, "Give me somebody else, give me the Bitcoin that you're in control of," right? Or if somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, you didn't register uh, under the KYC law, uh, KYC AML AML laws." The best way to approach this is to kind of be cypherpunk, right? Try to be anonymous, try to create peer-to-peer apps and try to create uh, non-custodial solutions. And that's a win-win. You win, you're less regulated. You don't have to worry about uh, being a custodian and you create products that are resilient and, and uh, maximizing of individual liberties. That's super interesting. It's it's one of the things that really got me hooked on Bitcoin is this idea of breathing life into a technology uh, that that then goes on to exist sort of on its own. Uh, it's very sci- scientific, uh, or not scientific. It's very sci-fi. It it almost evokes like a certain like Star Trek esque uh, feeling, but it's it seems very real. Uh, it's it's definitely an interesting to consider both the implications, negative and positive, that that could have in the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's it's honestly one of the most beautiful inventions that I've ever seen. I think it is the most beautiful invention that I've ever seen, and it truly is free market money, right? The fact that the fact that it's free market and on top of that, it has the flexibility of data in general. I mean, that's just we could we could you know t- uh, extol its virtues all day long. But I think that what's really beautiful about it is the awe and the wonder of this sublime uh, creation, and it's it's really a beautiful thing. Hmm, absolutely, I agree. Well. Uh, that's about all the topics that I had specifically for you. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that you think the listeners might find interesting? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think that what I'm very interested right now is the fact that we are in some of the most uh, interesting times, I think, ever, right? We're seeing geopolitical waves we're seeing markets doing wild wild things i mean the markets are really signaling major distortions right we have negative interest rates and then on top of all of this we have political uncertainty we have the myth of the infallible central bank as paranoid bull has pointed out and the bitcoin halving is next year right mm-hmm. the bitcoin halving is perhaps my favorite holiday of, of every of every single holiday right it's just such a glorious day and and i think that uh, I want everybody to huddle and and of course be you know maximize your individual sovereignty. Well, that's really good advice. I spend a lot of time paying attention to the macro macroeconomic landscape 
Uh, and you, you summarize it very well. It's, there's a lot of risk out there right now. And I would hope, you know, I, I'm not really worried about the people who listen to this podcast because I, my audio, my, uh, my style tends to attract a certain type of person who probably is either already figured all this out or in the process of figuring it out and at least asking the right questions. Am I concerned about the people who I try to get to listen to my podcast and I can't even get them to, to give it up? you know, get through one episode. Those are the people that I'm concerned about. Mm. Well, this is a good moment for me to plug your podcast because I think everybody listening right now should subscribe. I like your podcast a lot. I like your point of views a lot. I think that your uh, podcast is a very good niche. And, you know, we don't have to worry about quantity on, on the quality front. You are nailing it. So keep up the good work, Colin. Thanks very much. I really appreciate that. That that does mean a lot to me. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and one more time, you know, for anybody listening, where can they find you in case they want to follow and keep up with what you're doing and saying? Mm-hmm. On Twitter, I am at Bitcoin underscore, meaning the line on the bottom, lobby, L-O-B-B-Y. And that's the reason why I'm the Bitcoin, uh, I'm at Bitcoin underscore lobby is because I was thinking of naming uh, my eventual Bitcoin-only uh, legal advocacy firm or, or the Bitcoin lobby, right? That's, that's the name that I envision for it. But I'm, I'm the Bitcoin lawyer. Let me know if, if you're in the community and you have a Bitcoin law-related question. You could hit, uh, DM me. And I, I kind of want to be like the, uh, the, the community lawyer. You know, if you need, if you need something, let me know. I, I probably won't take your case because I'm, I'm too busy. Uh, I'm too busy doing my own side projects, but I would be very interested to, to try to help people out if I can. So now, uh, if I ever get pulled over for a DUI, I can say that I have a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And then we'll have to just do the retainer agreement after. <laughs> Um, well, I, I actually, I'm really excited I, to hear more about your Bitcoin lobby and, uh, I'll look forward to hopefully seeing that come to fruition in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, uh, by the way, this is my first podcast. So I, I just wanted to say that I, I chose your podcast because I, I appreciate it so much. So thank you for giving me a platform, Colin. Oh, I'm honored. I'm honored to have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we'll see you on some other guys here soon. Like maybe Stefan Levera or something. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it in a good right. one for Cheers. you. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that, Colin. Cheers. All right, Bitcoin yeah. lawyer. Until uh, next time, man. Thanks for coming. Till next time. Cheers. All right, guys. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that talk. I really want to get Bitcoin lawyer back on the show. He's a really smart guy. Very eloquent speaker. Obviously a lawyer. You can tell just based on the way he uh, presents his case uh, on a lot of things. But super cool guy. Super nice. Uh, I'd love to talk with him more in the future. Highly encourage you guys to go follow him on Twitter. He doesn't have a very big Twitter following, so let's show him some BEC love. If you guys have been enjoying the show, I would highly encourage or at least appreciate you for subscribing or leaving any reviews, thumbs up, comments on whatever platform it is that you're listening to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber on. Your support goes a long way to help me continue to grow the show, continue to get more exposure, and continue to get more interesting guests on and continue to deliver you high quality content. If you guys want to get in contact with me, you can find me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C, or you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. I'm pretty picky when it comes to sponsorships. The main sponsorship that I've had with this show is BitcoinOnly.com. Shout out BitcoinOnly. We love your stuff. Uh, Go check out BitcoinOnly if you guys haven't yet. They are an excellent, huge repository of resources for anything and all things BitcoinOnly, whether it be podcasts or guides or software. Really probably one of the best one-stop shop resources for Bitcoin out there that I'm aware of. As far as many of the other people that I've had reach out to me in emails about sponsorships and stuff, no, I'm not interested in your crypto education platforms or your uh, shady exchanges or anything like that. Uh, I'm going to be pretty picky when it comes to sponsorships. So Uh, And that's just because, you know, and it might not even be anything against your product. Your product might be perfectly viable, but I want to be uh, very careful what products I'm promoting with this platform, particularly because I'm not doing this as a way to try to make a living. I'm doing it as a way to try to learn myself and to try to help other people learn more about Bitcoin, the topic that we all have in common and find so interesting. Anyways, guys, that's all I got for this one, and I will see you in the next one. Uh